HR professionals, business owners, and operations at all levels are struggling to figure out what needs to change. Our system has been shocked, practices have been questioned, and conversations are finally happening. We all know there has been a huge shift in what people want. Inclusion and diversity are common phrases, but often misunderstood. Generations are coming together more than ever on what's important. Mental health has been brought to the forefront of everyone's mind. Let's humanize these conversations. Let's talk about what's important for employees to be successful in life and at their job, and how companies can create an environment to allow them to do both. Because successful people will make up a successful workforce. I'm Leanne Lovely. Let's get this conversation started. Another great episode coming to you today. I'm speaking with Kelly Commons, originally from Milwaukee. Kelly left Wisconsin for her undergrad at Purdue University and a job at in Kansas City, Missouri. But New Milwaukee was a place to raise a family. After nearly a decade in manufacturing and an MBA from Mount Mary, Kelly returned to her hospitality roots to build human resource functionality for SAS's hospitality group, and now is a senior HR business partner with Gale Foods and Beverage in Germantown. Small businesses and community involvement are her passion. So she works with a number of organizations in the area and volunteers with groups to help students grow like Launch and teaches in the Lumbar College of Business at UW-Milwaukee. Kelly was recognized in 2020 as a notable woman in human resource by Biz Times Media. She tries to be as avid with fitness as she is with reading and napping and loves exploring Milwaukee area restaurants. Kelly lives in Wauwatosa with her partner Rob, who is an owner of Venture Brew Company and her daughter Anna. I'm excited to have this awesome conversation with a, a, a very amazing woman. So let's welcome her. Kelly, welcome. I am so excited to talk with you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So Kelly, why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, absolutely. Um, I am currently a senior HR business partner with Gale Food and Beverage in Germantown, Wisconsin. Um, but I spent about the last seven years working for SAS's Hospitality Group um, here in Milwaukee, um, organization of about a thousand folks. Um, and I, I spent that time leading their HR team and building out HR functionality for them. Um, I uh, currently am teaching at UWM. Um, I'm an adjunct in the Lubar College. Um, I was previously teaching at Mount Mary University, which is where I received my MBA. So I, I find myself loving to talk about uh, HR-related topics, whether the listeners want to listen or not, which is sometimes the case with students. Um, I live in Wauwatosa. I have a 16-year-old. Uh, my partner owns a small business here that I try to keep my HR nose out of. <laughs> That's funny that you say that you try to keep your HR. You know, it's hard though, right? Especially when it you're a, when you're uh, you know an HR junkie. Um, yes, there are times where I'm like, I you the. Are you sure you want to do that just that way? Um, but, you know, not my circus, not not my monkeys. Uh. Right. Well, that's awesome. So, it, you know, it's really interesting. You you came from you spent a lot of time at you know in the hospitality industry and now you've moved to you know something that's you, you've moved away from that. Um 
so I I would love to talk about you know I guess the differences in sure where you you were to where you're where you are I mean that's two different animals yeah they you know it's kind of a little bit like the difference between a tiger and a mountain lion though they are uh, different animals that share a lot of similarities um and this is a return to manufacturing for me so I've kind of been on a seesaw for the last 15 years um, my background in education is in hospitality um, but then I worked in manufacturing for um, almost eight years um, and then came back to hospitality and now back in manufacturing so I've had a great opportunity to see those differences and the similarities. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest differences is that it is easier for folks sometimes to understand a career path um, in the manufacturing industry. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit plainer and a little bit more um, acceptable to have a, a blue collar job. Um, you know, hospitality jobs are often kind of the brunt of, uh, the brunt of the joke, right? Like you went to school and now you're a barista or you're a server. Um, so kind of the ability to attract and retain people is a little bit different on the manufacturing side because it is more classically presented as a job you can have. Um, it, it's kind of, and, and that you can turn into, um, you know, a lifelong pursuit, um, Sometimes it's, it's a tough sell for hospitality folks. Um, and why do you think that is? I think historically, a lot of it is the perception of the financial availability in hospitality. Um, you know, there are some hospitality jobs as servers and bartenders can make extraordinarily generous livings, mm -hmm. um, you know, with very flexible hours and they're skilled folks, but that's not the perception unless you've been in it. Um, you know, if you're a, a lifelong bartender, if you look at, you know, the tropes in TV and movies, you know, if somebody's been a bartender for 15 years, it's it's the butt of jokes, you know. Um, it, right. I think of Nick Miller and New Girl, right? Like it, being a bartender was his failure job. Um, mm -hmm. And if he had worked a line in a manufacturing plant, it would have really changed the premise of the show, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, but I think the commonality there is sometimes that they are, both industries are a difficult sell outside as um, prestigious or something to be aspired to. I'm really glad that we're seeing a shift um, in how we approach students pursuing post high school, mm -hmm. um, that it's not that importance of that four-year degree, that briefcase life, that, um, you know, that there are other options available for students for whom that isn't comfortable or attractive or aligned with their skill set. So we're seeing that crack open a little bit more um, and, and become more pop, popular is not the word I want, but uh, more acceptable, more featured um, in high school students to see them pursue um, technical paths, apprenticeship paths, instead of that, you know, pursuit of a four-year degree that, you know, might make them end up as a barista um, just to circle back around. Uh, so the the difference really, I think, is is how people perceive the industries, yeah. um, the earning potential, the skills required more than anything else. You know, what movie keeps popping into my head as you're talking is, and this is, I'm going to date myself here, but the movie Cocktail, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, um, who was it? Um, what's the actor? 
Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is he's he's busting his butt to go to college, right? And um and he's just he's not making it, not making it, and then he becomes a, a wildly successful bartender. And then he falls in love with a woman whose family won't accept him because he is a bartender. They in the end end up together, and it's not by any means like this perfect, you know, perfect straight path, but in the end he 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 gets to have a dream of still being a, a bartender, right? Um, it, it and and I I go back to you know during my time of of growing up, it was you have to have a four year college to be successful, but that's not that doesn't that doesn't hold water in today's society anymore because there are wildly successful people. One of my best friends makes a amazing living as a server. She has people who come. Yeah. She has people who who would come in just to see her, and sit in her section because they liked her. And the thing is, it didn't hold water for the last twenty five years either. Um, just right, we weren't really availed any other options. Um, you know, it it was the path that we were shown. It was the the picture that we painted for students. It was how employers structured jobs in so many cases where that it wasn't necessary um, or even meaningfully beneficial. Um, You know, the number of roles I've heard over time where it doesn't matter what they have a degree in as long as they stuck with something. Well, that's nonsense. You know, if if somebody was in a a progressive role for the last four years Mm -hmm. and building skills and experience, that is, that is equally valuable. It shows that same stick to And yeah, I could be in school forever. If you gave me unlimited funding, I'm still trying to crack a way to make money reading books and thinking about stuff and talking about ideas and writing papers. If I could do it, I would. Um, that is not like that. I'm, I'm in the minority to love school, the school setting that mm-hmm. much. That's not how a lot of people learn best. It's not accessible to them in that style. Um, And that's great, Mm -hmm. you know? Some of the most successful folks I know, regardless of their role or industry, didn't come along on that path and they're extraordinarily successful. Right. Um, So uh, trying to find paths and avenues. I work with uh, the the program called Launch here locally in the Wauwatosa and Elmbrook School Districts Mm -hmm. that put students in opportunities um, on a a variety of different industry-related threads, um, strands, not threads, to um, be paired with a professional mentor and solve a real-life business problem and give them exposure to what things could look like on some paths that that could take you into a four-year education Mm -hmm. um, or could take you into an apprenticeship or a technical program and really get a feel for where your skills and strengths lie. Um, And seeing more employers partner with organizations like that and programs in that vein um, to give students a more holistic viewpoint of what truly skills and education are available and how you can gain those in ways that aren't necessarily, you know, spending more than $100,000 on you know, the economics of underdeveloped countries and the history of rock and roll. Like, um, 
there's 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 better ways and I what I that's one of the things that I love about both hospitality and manufacturing Mm -hmm. are that there are there's been a lot of attention to developing and displaying career paths within the industries and organizations that I've worked with to show this isn't a dead-end job you know this you're not going to stand on this line forever that you if what you want is to learn and grow and expand within this company or within this industry there are are paths towards that and um and i and i love what you just said that that within the industry they are now starting to show that there are paths and i think that that's where it's been lacking you become a server and there's nothing else that that's what you're going to do from the time you start till the time that you end that you're no longer there and and if there's if there's an actual path because they've done a really great sh- job of showing that when you're in this you know white color you know role of here you know here's where you begin here's where you can go but that's not necessarily what happens with everybody you have to have somebody at no. every level and right. some people and don't some people don't want that correct to continue moving up and you need those folks those right. people that know all the secrets and the subject matter expertise the unfortunate, as glad as I am to see it happening now, though, I think a lot of the struggle is that we were way behind the eight ball. Um, manufacturing and hospitality in particular have lagged um, in responding to the changing needs of the workforce over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. This was something that we needed to be focused on, but there was such a, a an embarrassment of riches in terms of available people in the workforce who were willing or needed to take whatever job they could get. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could, you know, put them in that Ron Popeil rotisserie and just set them and forget them. And if they quit, so what? You hire somebody else. Um, you know, you fill those entry level roles and never meaningfully in hospitality, in manufacturing, very much so, gave them that attention that someone in the entry level of a white collar job may have gotten about here's what the ladder looks like. Right. Um, and so, and employees, we, we have fewer people in the workforce than, you know, in any time in recent history right. and folks that are entering the workforce and folks that are in the workforce are requiring different things from their employers. And I think that's great. Um, and watching these two industries kind of crack open to understand the importance of providing that visibility, I think is um, a long time coming, but a very valuable steps. Right. If we were to treat it, it had we because tre- it's you're talking about it, it happening now. But had it always been you treat regardless of the industry, if it white collar, blue collar um, hospitality, I, I don't know which where that falls under. Um, but had we treated all of them the same, regardless of, you know, education, regardless, here's, here's where you're starting. Here's the path of how you can progress. And in, I'm assuming that in hospitality, I know it in manufacturing, because I understand that industry, I don't understand hospitality as well, but there is room to grow, right? There is room to hospitality. Hey, you can become a trainer. You can become the manager of a division or whatever within. So there, are, there is, there is. I'm assuming growth opportunity and like, absolutely. And and like you said, not everybody wants that even in the white collar industry, even in, 
right. hey, I just want to go in. I want to be a, a help desk technician. And I want to be really, really good at that. And that's my dream. Yep. I just want to punch. I want to leave it at work. I, you know, I, Correct. I want to do this thing. I don't want to train people. I don't want to supervise Correct. people. I don't want to, that's, I just want to do this. Then I want you to pay me a little more every year and just leave me alone. Correct. And, and that's, that's great. Those people are invaluable. Correct. And that's the same thing. If you want to be a machine operator, I just want to yep. do this. I want to punch now. If you want to go in and eventually move up and become a trainer, a plant manager, whatever that might look like, it's it's no different. Right. Or, you know, you're a machine operator, but are you curious about quality? Are you curious about supply chain? Like, these are different paths that we can put you on. You know, this is how you can pursue that slight shift in gears. Or, you know, if you want to do this for a year while you're going to school, while you're figuring it out, while you're deciding on the next thing. Great. You know, we also need that, that turnover is necessary. You know, it's being an HR professional part of, you know, there, there's that propensity to say, drop the turnover to zero. <laughs> we keep everybody forever. Never leave. Please never leave. Um, but it really is about striking that balance between those folks that need to climb and want to climb those subsistence folks that want to just stick in their lane and be comfortable and experts at what they do. And those folks who want to come and go and bring an idea or a joke that becomes part of the culture or a sunshiny attitude or an example of what not to do and stay for a shorter tenure to keep that momentum in the business and keep the, the team fresh. They're all important players and they impact those numbers in such different ways. Absolutely. And it, now, and you said, you know, obviously, you know, the, the goal, 0% turnover, right? <laughs> That's, it's never going to happen. Um, I shouldn't say, I mean. What there, a nightmare. But think of how horrible. If we had 0% turnover there for were two years, somebody's no, going to retire and then what? You know, how do well, we... Well, and there's never any fresh ideas. There's never right. any, you would never have, you know, organic growth in the sense of somebody coming in and saying, hey, you know, you could do it better this way. Or you could, you know, the whole concept of, yeah. you know, there would never be anybody coming in from another organization or a young, a young brain who's like, you know, you could actually do it this way to reduce, you know, yeah. Whatever it, would it might forever be. be. We just do it how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there always needs to be that, that, you know, new, fresh blood coming in. But I also have heard a lot of people saying that some of those younger people coming in, they want to, they want to be loyal. They, they're, they're looking to find their home. Sure. Nobody, it, 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 it's a rare person that enjoys the need to bounce. Um, in my experience, working with folks that are predominantly Gen Z um, as students in the workforce, um, within those launch programs, there isn't that intrinsic mental link for that age group where loyalty and longevity are necessarily tied. Um, they want to be loyal in that they want to be engaged and contribute and understand what's happening and be valued. And if that's true, they will stay for longer periods of time. But they are also not opposed to 
being loyal to 100% mm-hmm. um, for shorter periods of time. Like okay. that we, especially as, you know, elder millennials and, and, you know, Gen X leaders have this idea that loyalty means longevity. Loyalty means that you're not on your phone and you're offering fresh ideas and you're invested in what you're doing and your work's being completed on schedule and you're giving me and the organization your best. It doesn't mean that you're phoning it in at 65%, but you stay for five years. That's, I I don't want that type of, (laughs) I don't want that type of loyalty. Um, I, you know, I'm concerned regardless of the, the time frame, with an engaged contributing workforce. You know, it's, um, it's, do I want people to leave every six to 12 months? No. You know, I would love to see, but three years is a wonderful tenure for folks in this Gen Z bucket. Um, they are energized and you get a lot of contributions from them, but it never gets stale and you you get a reasonable turn of, of fresh ideas and voices. And it's wildly interesting um, because I, I talk to so many HR professionals and they always think of loyalty and longevity as, you know, an inclusion, inclusive thing to yeah. have it looked at as something different um, is, is really refreshing because you can be wildly loyal, but only be at a company for two to three years um, and, and give it your all. And then have that company in turn, not be upset when it's time for you to move on and, and still, you know, and, and I've had this conversation. I've had this conversation with HR professionals when they're saying, you know, I don't know that this person's in it for the long haul. And I've had to say to them, if this person will give you high quality, awesome work for the next two years, is it worth it to hire them right now? Well, yeah. Okay. So why are you concerned that they're going to leave you, you know, that, that you don't want to hire them because they might leave you in five years or they might leave you at what, you know, and they're like, well, you know, I really don't want to have to train somebody again. Okay. It's going to take what, two, three weeks to get them up and running. And then by, you know, two months, three months from now, they're going to be out there on their own producing, doing an awesome job for you, which is what you're saying. Well, yeah. Okay. So for two, and how three years, leaders, the real responsibility to having that argument with people, the real responsibility is that you as a leader, while they're there, need to work to increase the, or to decrease the time to proficiency for the next person. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's Wait, how, how fast can we get them up and running correct. then understanding that now we're shifting our focus to, we want to lock somebody into this role for the next six years. And it, we're shifting it to let's get someone in here who's passionate about it and get them working as fast as we can. Right. My partner likes to say when he hires new team members, I'm just renting you until you're on to the next big thing. And and that if if we if more more leaders thought of it that way, and, and we're and again not they were loyal to those employees as long as those employees were at the company and those employees were loyal to them. There and and understanding that because everybody wants oh you know my company is the best and anybody who works here is going to stay here forever no they're not I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry to bust your you know burst your bubble I'm sorry to break your heart but you're not the best there is millions of organizations out there 
and you're you're if you want to leave this position open for the next six months while you look for the perfect person who's going to stay there for the next 10 years you're you're going to lose six months maybe eight months of production or you could hire this person who you know will do a great job but you know that they're probably going to leave in two years but there's and it's more interesting but that there, mentality oh sorry go ahead but there are a ton of employers out there that still will say yeah i'm going to pass on them because i think they're going to leave in two years okay then you can leave this open and you're going to lose the production that this person would jump in and be able to get up and running and give you those two solid years for sure you know and maybe leave and maybe you know what if you treat them amazing and you do really well for maybe you'll get three years out of them. Maybe you'll get even longer out of them. But or maybe they'll stay with the organization and move into a different role if it right. is the best company. Like, and you know that I hate the word attitude across the board. Um, that voiced opinion from employers and the fact that that is a known belief prevents people from being honest about what they want and need. Mm -hmm. um, I've always had that mentality with my team. Like I am, you're here for now. You're in this role for as long as you are until you're on to your next adventure. Right. So I have had team members come to me and say, it's not that I'm unhappy with my job, but I think in the next couple of months, I'm going to be looking to move on to my next chapter. Right. Not two weeks notice because it, it isn't met with that resistance and that bitterness. How can you like, and, you know, we have, an, we have the opportunity then to have an open conversation. Is there something about your job I can change? Would it help to shift? Is it money? Like, and okay, if it's time for you to leave, how can I support you into the next? Do you need some contacts? Do you need help taking a look at your resume? If, if we can have an open dialogue about the fact that we are not getting married, when we hire an employee, it's not forever we can have a more open and honest dialogue when it's time for them to leave and move on to that next thing so that we don't feel so left in the lurch. Managing that retention schedule is a daily leadership function that it's based on the relationship and not that one-sided idea that you, I hired you and now you have to stay here forever. Mm -hmm. You know, and then it, God, if, if more managers, and that really leads me into the next question that I was going to ask you, which is what are some of the strategies that you have to better understand your team and retain your people in, in a market like this? And you're, you are already answering that you're having that open dialogue and not having, you know, if people were more open and going to their managers and saying, you know, here are the reasons that I'm thinking or considering leaving. And that manager said, okay, let's, let's talk it through. And if I can offer you something that you're missing in your current role, you want more responsibility, you want more, or if we just don't have it here, then I completely understand. Now your position to go, okay, so in the next four months, I'm going to have another slot that I'm going to need to to fill. You're as a company, you're better positioned to move and, you know, be prepared to to backfill that. You're not going to be backfilling that. You, you're, you're not going to be behind the mark. You're going to be ahead of the curve where all the other companies are going to be like, oh, wait, you're giving two weeks notice. What? Why? Why? You're doing such a good job. You're, you're already aware. Yes. And, and you're right. And take the next 10 days to write down everything you do because we haven't been paying attention to your needs in this, this thing. And part of, uh, to answer the question with 
kind of a, a, a pivot um, in this market. I think, especially in manufacturing and hospitality, so much of managing the employee needs is different than the conversations that are being had. Um, I go to so many events and webinars and seminars and um, the folks that are having these conversations about even the data that's been collected, um, they're in white collar jobs. Even in manufacturing and hospitality, we're talking to people who sit in air conditioned offices, you know, like they're, we're talking about flexible scheduling and remote work and those things are great. Um, but I can't run a manufacturing plant remotely. Right. Um, and it, it's disappointing, especially as HR as a, as a practice and employers overall are starting to talk about paths into professional life that don't go through that four-year college track. Mm -hmm. um, we're still not having conversations about how to meet the needs of people that don't take that path. Mm -hmm. um, I can't offer construction workers remote schedule. Um, it's difficult to navigate sick time mm -hmm. in some of those scenarios um, because I, uh, my, my relatively white collar neighborhood is going to freak out if we don't get our snow plowed because we upped the sick days for our municipal package. And, you know, so I, part of the struggle as a, a voice at the table of employers is to say, the data we have on this doesn't apply. Um, I think we need to be surveying, hey, surveys are such a tough thing. We need to be collecting more data, whether it is quantitative survey-based data or internal qualitative feedback from our team members about how to serve their needs and make the jobs that we're trying to get people to fill and stay in more attractive and feasible for that. It, um, one of our plants to move to the, uh, you know, in order to fill the third shift, they said, we'll do four tens. Mm -hmm. It's it, so it, I completely understand what you're saying. So I, my husband, um, he is, he's in a, a blue collar role. He runs a, um, you know, a press, he runs a, he, you know, he's on the manufacturing floor. Sure. So, you know, he's sitting here listening to me talk about, you know, oh man, I, I can work from home when I, whenever I want, I, I can do this. And, and he's sitting there going, yeah, well, I, I have to go in every day. I have to be at my machine every day. He's like this, none of this stuff really applies to me. None of it, you know, why should I care about any of this? And I'm thinking to myself, wow, through the entire pandemic, his business was considered, um, essential. essential. Yeah, it I mean, so think about all of these people, all, you know, the whole entire world's like, oh, I only want to work remote now. I'm not going to go into the office anymore. And here are these individuals, you know, the hospitals, you've got all of these essential workers that the world is going crazy arguing about. I'm not going to I'm not going to go into the office anymore. And we're blind to the fact that there is a huge population of people that st their lives did not change. They went to work every single day. And in some cases, they worked harder. I mean, my God, yeah. hospitals, I mean, they worked their butts off. 
how and and what are we doing because all of us you know white collar workers are saying well i want better conditions i want to be able to work from home why would i go into the office when i can do we're sitting here being and and forgive me but selfishly you know me 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 but what about them what about how do we improve the quality that of of how they work when we're still saying, well, you need to be there every day. I need my labels for my bread, not bread, cheese or whatever so that I can go to the store yeah. and get my. And then we're sitting here whining about why is there a shortage of this uh, toilet paper? Right. Why that... are there supply chain issues? Right. Correct. And because so, there was there's been a lot of statements over time. If you don't like it, get a get a better job. Right. Get a better job. Like. There are a lot of roles in manufacturing companies that are on that production side that make excellent livings. Mm -hmm. It is arguably a better job than many, many options. You're saying get a different job that has the same standards that I do. But if that's the case, then you don't have food products. You have supply chain delays. You have municipal, your trash isn't getting picked up. You're like, it's not it's not as simple as we would like to make it out to be and realistically the workforce is pretty well split between those service-based things mm -hmm. where that remote work is possible and those boots on the ground there's no way to produce this remotely roles that keep the whole thing on the wheel on its wheels and we've spent so much time talking about the former category of employees mm -hmm. And it's continued to make that those latter categories appear less attractive to people having those conversations. Right. Because as employers, we are still trying to minimize any available cost, of course. Um, and my challenge always, you know, as an HR practitioner has been that balance, right? We're that fulcrum point between the appropriate sacrifice on the part of the business and the appropriate sacrifice on the part of the employee. Um, and, and, and each party, as HR practitioners, each side of that equation thinks that we're most concerned with the other side, <laughs> you know? And But how, how do we balance that, you know? And how do we make those roles as attractive as possible and meeting the needs of the team? Um, I wish we had more conversations about it. Right. Especially as we have emphasized the importance of getting people into those roles. Um, and I think that that the people who are physically on the floor need to have a voice at that table. They can't yeah. they can't have somebody speaking on their behalf because and and, no. and I'm not saying that somebody like you doesn't fully understand. I don't. I absolutely but don't. But you do, right. You but know? you truly you truly don't because you're you're not in it every day. Somebody needs somebody who's physically somebody who's physically doing that work needs to have a seat at the table to be able to say, "Look, I'm here to represent my fellow workers. I'm here to say this is what would help us. This would this is what would make a difference for us." We know we have to be here. We know we have to come in every day. But what if we did this? What, you know, and, right. and come up with different ideas. Because I don't know when the last time that I heard somebody who physically is doing that job talk about how they could make it better. 
all the feedback that I always get is from somebody who's managing those people from an office. Yeah. And I, I really do, you know, we surveys have become such a buzz topic, right? We're always, we're talking about employee engagement surveys and blah, blah, blah. And, and sometimes those, those surveys, my question around the surveys is always like, do we want to win or do we want to learn? Mm-hmm. Do we want good numbers in this or like reactions from employees that make it appear that we're doing everything we can? Or do we want to get just blasted? Like, do we want the ugly answers? Mm-hmm. Um, because I want the ugly answers. Right. I want to I want to hear those things that I that I haven't heard, because sometimes it is things like, you know, it would be for a third shift would be more attractive to me if I only had to do it three days or four days a week. Right. You know, if we could work six, six hour shifts for some people based on their family, you know, like if we could break this into four, six hour shifts where it could be a little bit more flexible for people. But I think that we've yeah. created a culture that that's fear-based for so many individuals out there. Well, if I speak up and yeah. I'm honest about it, what if I lose my job? What if they replace me with somebody who's going to conform to what they need here? I mean, and and I, I I've seen those cultures too. I've I've placed individuals in there that literally start working there, and then three days later they're like, I'm not working here anymore. And I'm like, why? What's going on? And they're like, oh, it's a horrible, horrible culture. I cannot, you know, it's so there are those still those fear based cultures conform yeah. or you're out. So we, you know, as a society, this is still a, you know, a, a systemic problem that that is that is raging throughout within some of these, you know, industries that exist still. It's conform or go away. It's still the, are you're not doing this fast enough, or how dare you take a sick Production day. is king. Right. Production is, and I, and I get that, but there's got to be a different, there's, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. And, um, and that's, culture is such an interesting thing because they're, again, you know, kind of the folks that sit in offices mm-hmm. work on culture a lot as a topic, capital C culture, right? Right. Um, and... I've seen a lot of organizations where the capital C culture that happens off the floor, um, what our mouths are saying doesn't match the the little C culture that is what happens on the floor and is what our feet are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a lot of disconnect in HR as a discipline um, about how culture is driven. You know, I struggle uh, as an HR practitioner with being charged with with improving the culture uh, sometimes. You know, that it's something in, in my career over the last 15, 16 years that I've been charged with doing more than once. We need to change the culture. You and your team need to change the culture. I can't. I, I can't. Um, if you say that that one of our values is, you know, growth and development, but... So that's the culture that I'm pushing, you know, but that leadership at the the floor level, the frontline level is focused on call volume in a call center or like customer time in contact. What it's not about getting that training in. That's not a priority. How can I, I can't lead all of the teams, you know, um, whatever that, that priority is happens every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. 
culture is not an initiative you know the culture is so in order to change the culture you have to change what you do right and you know i feel like in some of these scenarios where that is there is that mismatch of priorities especially in those like frontline type jobs the culture is we care about our people they're the most important thing like you know and and then it's you need to work six days or you need to get xyz done but there's no overtime available to do it in right. or your hours are being cut um it it, it, it starts at the top however it has to it has to be believed and it has to be shown all the way down trickled down and if one person is out of misalignment and is oh well you didn't finish this you have to stay late that throws off you know absolutely everything if the whole idea is work life balance the whole idea is taking it it absolutely it has to it has to start from the very top of holding whatever that value is true to heart and then it has to At be 100%. Correct. That's, and, you know, any, you know, a problem is any deviation from expected performance, right? And and as leaders throughout the organization, the accountability for those cultural initiatives, mm -hmm. whatever it is that we're focusing on has to be absolute. Because just like having kids, right? Like the first time, the first time there's a chink in that armor you know, that if this is our thing, the first time there's a glimmer of light through that where you fail to enforce it, mm -hmm. it's nothing but arrows through that tiny hole and you've lost all accountability. And right. culture can't be something where I like slink out of my HR cave and deliver as a mandate, you know, that this is who we are now. Right. Um, and, that's and then kind of. But take that my hump back and, and cook up some next thing that we're going to, you know, you, you, I, you lose credibility if it's not in lockstep with what our practices that everyone is held accountable to. Right. Um, and and that is stemmed from the feedback from those line level employees. Like mm -hmm. this is the place that we want to work. And what is that balance between what we need to achieve production, financials, performance, whatever that is, where is that balance between the business that we have to do and the business that we have to run right. for the people that do it? And and that's why there's teams of people who, I mean, outside, there's companies that all they do is they go into yep. other companies to help completely, you know, change culture. And they work with people at every single level all the way down to the manufacturing floor because yeah. one person does not have the ability to train to change the culture at a company. And I and I love that when you you said that they come to you and they say, OK, change the culture at the company. Really? What what power does one person have? None. One person has zero power at a comp unless it's a company of one. <laughs> Right. And, you know, it's, or it's maybe two. But... idea that, you know, culture isn't about posters or a happy hour or right. the pool table or, you know, it's the, the culture leads to the pool table and the happy hour. You know, mm -hmm. culture isn't mandatory fun. It's organic fun. Right. If you have buy-in from your entire organization, you then have created the culture. And it and that call and I'm not saying that you've created a good culture, right? I'm saying that you've created if, the culture. You've created the yeah. culture, 
That is yeah. now if you have the organization all flowing in one way or the other, that is your culture. Yep. Good, bad, occurring. Correct. In order to change that, if you're trying to change it for the better, you have to get buy-in from your entire organization to be flowing in one way or another. One person does not have the ability to do that. It's just you need every or even one department. It's not like we it, can right. release all of our HR minions into the wild and Correct. shift this. You know, it would be like it would be like goldfish turning a boat. Like there's just not enough goldfish turning. Now a boat. you're picturing it, right? I am. <laughs> what it looks like, um, and how many goldfish you would need to do that. You know, but that's that's the thing. But if we get all of the fish in the whole place, we mm -hmm. can turn the boat. Yep. Um, but our, you know, the, the two, six, 12 fish that are HR, depending on the size of the organization, right. Just don't have the juice. And, yeah. you know, I understand working HR. The joke is, you know, I'll, I'll make it myself at this point. Like here comes the fun police, you know, like mm -hmm. HR historically just doesn't have in most organizations doesn't have the street cred. Well, and unfortunately, you know? unfortunately, HR has become the, the way that the employees look at HR has become, oh, here comes the, you know, the, the person the who's- The man the bad guy. Right. The, the, yeah. When, and I've said this numerous times throughout this, you know, throughout my podcast, nobody started out when, you know, again, you know, I, I have my degree in, with an emphasis in HR. I did not start going to school for human resource management with the idea that I wanted to be the guard dog for a company. I originally right. went because I wanted to be a voice for the people, but it changed. Human resource, it, it, in 2008, there was a, a, a definite change in, it was a shift because we used to have huge teams of HR and, and we were able to be a voice for the people because you had, you know, I, I was on, on a team of like seven people. And then I was laid off. And then when when the economy bounced back, you would have at that same company that had seven HR people, there was one trying to do everything. How was that person supposed to try to be a voice for the people when they couldn't even keep their head above water in order to get payroll done, benefits done, and you know all the other stuff that went along with being HR? Right. And we, I know that we're trying to get back to that, where that HR person can be a voice for the people. They can be a resource. They can help them. But because a lot of people saw HR now in a different light, it's been a struggle to get back to that. And so you're right. The joke, you know, I, I, I became the hated HR lady. Everybody's like, oh, here she comes. And I'm like, you know what? I'm right. done it's with never this. good news, right? We're it was never bringing, right. We're never bringing good news. Right. Sign I, this, do this, do, you know, right. and it was, it, it's so, yes, HR, you know, a lot of people don't want HR around, um, but and there it's are. it's interesting that you say like that your degree, you have an emphasis in human resources. My degree is in hospitality management. My career was pursued to serve um, mm -hmm. and you know, bringing that into human resources, you know, my responsibility was to serve customers, clients, guests. And I was educated with the ideology that whoever does the most for your business 
owns your business, runs your business. Mm -hmm. And that's who you're responsible to serve. So my customer is the employee because, you know, there's the old adage, right? Like if you take care of your employees, you never have to worry about the customers. Right. It's the, you know, if I take care of our internal customers, if I ensure that we're serving that need, the standards get met, the product goes out. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's that intrinsic motivation where people do feel engaged and cared about and served. You know, I've had folks say, I've been in my role now about eight weeks. And I've had a couple of people surprised that I know on site as many of the people that I know and re- remember their stories. And it really is that like front desk of a hotel thing right. where it's like that you need that relationship. You know, the same thing, learning a room full of students for me now as quickly as I can, because I need them just like a guest in a hotel, just like an employee in my, my organization. I need them to know that they're my priority. Right. And that, so if you told me three times about your sick kid and I don't remember, none of our relationship from your perspective feels authentic because to you, it's one-to-one. To me, there's 500 of you, but that doesn't matter. It's like when your server comes up to a table and says, sorry, it took so long. We're short staffed today. I don't care. Right. Like, you know, because this is the only experience that I'm having today as an employee with one HR person or as a guest with one server. Um, and and that, that service mindset is so often lost. And that's what makes you different because you care and you take time to show them that you care because that means the world to your employees when you remember the details when you remember what matters to them because it's it's never about for your employees what it comes down to is how you made them feel nobody remembers the specific conversation you know, six months from now, ultimately, everything in life comes down to how you made them feel at that moment. And when they have a sick kid at home, and they come to you and they say, "Ah, I've got to go take care of that. If you make them feel guilty for the fact they have to leave work, they will remember that forever. If you tell them, I completely understand that you got to go take care of this, go take care of it, don't worry about anything, and you make them feel validated, and you make them feel like, you know, nothing matters other than them taking care of their family, at the end of the day, they're going to remember that you made them feel okay about it. And I, employers, they, they're so blind to that. If I feel guilty that I have to go take care of my family, or I feel guilty that I have to walk away from work for something because it's a personal thing for me. I remember how my employer made me feel. When you remember a birth date or you remember something personal about employee, they remember how you made them feel. It is so wildly important. You know, and as being that that HR fulcrum and, and still needing to manage the costs and interests of the business, because there, I, you know, we do have that responsibility. I think in those situations where you want to be that employee advocate or go the extra mile or give the thing and you can't, 
or there's a limitation, having enough respect for members of the workforce across the spectrum to have that conversation around the why is so important. Or when there is a corrective action or a policy action that has to be taken, not just delivering that, you know, because that's what the HR ogre does when she slinks out from underneath the bridge. You want to have that conversation around beyond the policy. This is why the policy, or this is why I have to say no, Mm -hmm. or I do want you to take the time, but understand these, please do take the time, but here's how it impacts the attendance policy. Family is first, absolutely, but I want you to be prepared that this is the conversation that we have to have. Right. Like going that, and that's so much of the struggle that I've seen in the difference between white collar work and blue collar work is that folks are more willing or comfortable having those holistic conversations with white collar workers, Mm -hmm. or we'll have a conversation with a blue collar worker at a white collar level about something, which is worse than not sharing right. the information in the first place. Meet people where they are and give them holistic information. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. And wish we could continue this conversation, but we are coming to time and I want to, um, ask, yes. Um, I want to ask you the question of the season. Um, so what would you change about your job or the practices that people have in your role? Um, yeah, if you, if you wanted to change anything or if you could, I think honestly, we, right before, right before the question this season, we really touched on that a lot. I think that the thing I would want to change for a lot of HR practitioners is understanding the importance of taking the information that your decisions, choices, actions, the company's decisions are based on and bringing that information to the team in the way that they can accept it. Um, It is dangerous, especially the longer you're an HR practitioner at a high level, you forget the lingo, the language that you use, your comfort level with the information. It's so second nature. that where we where we can control the culture um, is to have meaningful conversations with people about the things that impact them in a way that they understand. Um, you know, open enrollment is always something that sticks out to me in hospitality and manufacturing. I know a lot of, of highly educated white collar people who have no idea how their health insurance works. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, the speed with which and the casual nature or sometimes with which that information is rolled out to folks that may have even less exposure to that information mm-hmm. is a great example. Like the, the things that we just gloss over because we're so comfortable with the information and not understanding. It's like if you have the general manager of a restaurant train the brand new server or the brand new busser, it came up in catering. You know, you tell the new person, light the shapers. What's a shaper? How do I light it? <laughs> like, you know, what does that mean? Um, right. So really meeting people where they are with information is something that I would love to see shifted among a lot of colleagues that have to work across different age groups, across different experience levels, um, across different like technological abilities mm-hmm. is something that comes up a lot. And just having practitioners reconsider 
where the workforce is to deliver information in a way that it can be received more completely. That is an awesome answer. And I, I completely agree. Um, you are clearly extremely passionate about what you do. Um, and I, I thank you so much for coming on today, Kelly. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, LinkedIn is definitely the easiest way to track me down. Um, I am I am active on LinkedIn, Kelly Commons, Kelly with an I-E. Um, but also I am reachable um, at K Commons at Gale Foods, G-E-H-L dot foods dot com. Um, I love to talk HR almost at an embarrassing level. So um, I'm always happy to connect with with colleagues in HR, um, folks in other disciplines, really to just kind of get uh, to build my viewpoint of what's happening so that I can be of service. Excellent. Again, Kelly, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. And that's why I love talking to you because I am an HR geek as well. I love it. It was my pleasure. Um, happy holidays. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again for listening to Let's Talk HR. I appreciate your time and support. Without you, the audience, this would not be possible. So don't forget that if you enjoyed this episode, to follow us, like us, or share us. Have a wonderful day.